Well, we're in a series titled uh, Turning the World Upside Down, as, as you can see there, which is a study through the New Testament book called The Acts of the Apostles. I want to let you know that uh, you can uh, find our messages on YouTube at uh, LifePoint Church of Olympia. Remember, there's an E in point uh, because we like to be difficult. And then uh, you can also find those at mylpcoli.com forward slash media. And uh, this morning, if you'd like to take notes on your personal device, you can do that at mylpcoli.com forward slash notes. I've never done that personally. I'm told because I'm always up here, but but I'm told that you can email those directly to your own inbox when you're done taking notes, which is kind of a cool deal. Well, um, our title this morning is A Crisis Averted. We're in Acts chapter 19, verses 21 to 41. Uh, if you want to open your Bible there or turn on your device and log on to that, that would be a, then now would be a good time to do that. You know, one of the dynamics that occurs frequently in the life of a faithful disciple of Jesus, as well as in a church, is that after a great spiritual breakthrough of some kind, after a, a spiritual victory, after striking a blow to the spiritual forces in the kingdom of darkness in some way, there, there comes almost an inevitable spiritual counterattack. And, and it can take many different forms. In the life of an individual believer, it, it may be experienced in the form of an oppressive, irrational fear or depression, a general feeling of weakness or severe temptation to some sin, or, or other ways as well. And in a church, it will often manifest in the form of discontentment, or divisiveness, relational disunity. We have a wily enemy, don't we, who uh, who counterattacks in a variety of ways, some of them very predictable, some of them completely surprising. And uh, they can come just out of the blue and you say, where did that come from? Our text this morning describes one such counterattack. In last week's passage, Acts 19, 11-20, we saw God performing extraordinary miracles by extraordinary means through the hands of the Apostle Paul, with the result that many who were sick uh, were miraculously healed. Uh, evil spirits were cast out of those in whom they had taken up residence. Uh, supernatural signs of the presence and the power of the kingdom of God were being manifested in the city of Ephesus. And the fear of the Lord fell upon the residents of that city, and the name of Jesus Christ was glorified throughout that city and and, uh, and in the region beyond. And what took place next was widespread repentance on the part of Christians. Christians repenting, believers repenting, people who had professed belief in Jesus but who had nevertheless been persisting in secret sin. In this case, the practice of dark magic and the occult. And they came and they divulged their secrets and they they brought their books of magic spells and charms and incantations to be burned. And uh, they did this at great financial cost. 
You may recall that we calculated that the value of those books of magic uh, that were burned exceeded in today's currency over $6 million. So revival had had broken out all over Ephesus. And by the way, I wasn't sure if I was going to say this, but I am sure now that I'm going to say this. Parents, be very careful about involving your kids in magic in what seems, you know, kind of uh, harmless. Be very careful. So we pick up this morning... Uh, at verse 21 of Acts chapter 19, revival has broken out all over Ephesus. Stand with me and let's read this passage together. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia. Are you with me? Let's start over. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. 
for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when we said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is God's word. Let's bow in prayer together before you're seated. Lord, we ask now that your spirit would come and teach us that uh, we would understand things that uh, only your spirit can reveal. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to obey. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. In verses 21 to 22 then, Luke writes of determination and direction. Let me just read those two verses again for us. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit. And by the way, I think that's probably a little S there, not a big S. I think it's he resolved. And if you look at the Greek text in this case, what's being described there is his own personal resolve to pass through Macedonia and Achaia. You remember where he is right now? He's in Ephesus which is uh, on the west coast of the region of the world that the Romans called Asia, which today is Turkey. So when you read Asia in the New Testament, you're, you're not thinking about Japan and Korea and China and the Philippines and, and all those places. You're, you're thinking about Turkey. So that's where he is right now. Macedonia and Achaia are across the pond, across the Aegean Sea. He's been there before. That's where Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, Athens... Um, those, basically what is now Greece, uh, that's where Macedonia and Achaia were. So he resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, verses 21 to 22 are, are, are really first informational. And then they're secondly, inspirational, uh, but first informational. They, they kind of stand there alone, don't they, like, uh, uh, like directional traffic signs. And what did Luke want us to understand in these two verses? What can they teach us? Well, first we learn in verse 21 of Paul's determination, his resolution. Now that the gospel was, was pretty firmly established in Ephesus, following over two years of ministry there, uh, to return to Jerusalem, and from there to set sail again. This time far to the west, uh, to the city of Rome itself. And we learn elsewhere that his vision also included preaching the gospel all the way to Spain, uh, way out on the far western edge of the Roman Empire. And, and Paul was not a man of small visions. And sometimes we read these little verses that, that give us this, this little information. We need to stop and pause and just think about what's going on. What's going on? Paul was not a man of small visions. He, he had the advance of the gospel to the very ends of the earth on his mind and on his heart. It drove him relentlessly forward. And it's been said that, that his vision for the advance of the gospel uh, exceeded by far Alexander's vision, for example, of conquest. Uh, or any of the Caesar's visions for the expansion of the empire. But why did Paul feel the need to return to Macedonia and Achaia? He'd been there. He'd spent considerable amount of time there. Uh, 
the most probable explanation at this point in in Paul's ministry uh, was that he had set in motion, we know this, that he had set in motion a collection of financial gifts, what we might call today a benevolence fund, among the predominantly Gentile churches of Macedonia and Achaia for their Jewish brothers and sisters in Judea, where a widespread famine had occurred and and was bringing intense hunger and uh, deep poverty, especially to Christians. And you can read about that offering, that gift in 2 Corinthians 8, among other places. But Paul's intention in going to Macedonia and Achaia, I think, was in this case to go from church to church collecting funds and then to hand deliver them back to the church in Jerusalem. But we might also ask and answer the question while we're here, who is Erastus? He, he, he's not personally introduced, he just shows up. Simply identified along with Timothy as one of Paul's helpers. In Romans 16.23, uh, Paul describes Erastus as the treasurer for the city of Corinth, uh, a, a pretty uh, high office. And in fact, archaeologists found an inscription in the ruins of Corinth naming Erastus with that very title. You can see photographs of that inscription online. One other question arises here as well, and that is what happened to Silas? I know that that was heavy on your mind this morning as we read this. Where is Silas? I miss Silas. Uh, fact is, we, we've heard nothing about Silas since Paul was last in Corinth. And, and you remember, he had been his traveling buddy all along. They had covered a lot of miles together. Uh, but in fact, we won't hear about Silas again uh, in Acts. What, what happened to him? We simply don't know. At this point of the narrative, he simply vanishes into history. And I know that that was pressing on your mind and heart, and so I'm glad I was able to answer that for you. In, in verses 23 to 28, we read then of dollars and deities. Dollars and deities. Here's where the spiritual counterattack is mounted. In Ephesus stood the great temple to the Ephesian goddess Artemis. Uh, she's also associated with uh, the Greek goddess Diana. Um, see, Stephen, you're married to a Greek goddess. <laughs> Amazing. Um, but uh, Artemis was probably not the same. She, she, the, the, the Artemis of Ephesus was distinct. She was a goddess of fertility. The, this massive temple in Ephesus was regarded in the ancient world as one of the seven wonders. It was commissioned and paid for by Croesus or Croesus, the, the mega wealthy king of Lydia, uh, 550 years before Christ. Uh, completion uh, of the construction of that temple had taken 120 years, so uh, Croesus never saw the, the completion of the project that he financed. It was 50 feet longer and 40 feet wider than a football field. This is a, a huge structure, over twice as large as the Parthenon in Athens. The structure itself was engineered by precisely cut marble blocks that, that fit together perfectly. Sometimes we look at these ancient structures and we say, how, did, how in the world did they do that uh, in those days? Uh, 
The central structure was surrounded by 127 marble columns, each of them 60 feet high. The 36 of those columns featured carved reliefs created by one of the most celebrated sculptors of the day, a man named Scopus. And then on the interior of the temple stood a, a massive, I coined a term here, beautifully grotesque, idol to Artemis, the mother goddess, the goddess of fertility. Historians believe that the idol that stood in that temple was carved from a large meteorite that had fallen from the sky, or as the locals believed, had been thrown down from Zeus. The wooden roof structure, the only part of the building that was wood was the roof, it was set on fire in 356 by B.C. by an arson who wanted to make a name for himself. And uh, so the temple for a while was out of commission, but sometime later in the time of Alexander the Great, it was rebuilt to even greater magnificence. And uh, a second century B.C. Greek poet, whose name was Antipater of Sidon, wrote in his anthology these words, I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots, and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus, and the hanging gardens, and the colossus of the sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids, and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy, and I said, Lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on anything so grand. Well, why am I telling you all of that detail. Why is all of that so important? What we must understand as we engage this particular story is that this temple of Artemis in Ephesus was a really big deal. It was a source of enormous religious uh, pride, regional pride rather, a center for worship that, that shaped the religious identity of the Ephesian people, And for many, it was a generator of significant commerce and wealth. So let's read on. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Well, no little disturbance is uh, Luke's subtle way of saying a massive disturbance. Uh, this disturbance had as, as its focus the, the growing Christian movement that was known in those, day, in those days simply as the way. And that's an appropriate way to think about Christianity, not just uh, religious ideas or ideals, but a shared way of life and the way to 
life. Recall that Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No, no one comes to the Father but by me. It was inevitable that, that sooner or later, the gospel of Christ and the universal authority of Christ would come into conflict with the far-reaching influence of Artemis worship and, and the spiritual forces of darkness that, that completely attended it. So let's not fail to acknowledge that the disturbance that arose in Ephesus had a spiritual origin. Luke introduces this man Demetrius as a silversmith who made silver shrines to Artemis. Archaeologists have found in the excavations of the Temple of Artemis, specifically in the area of Ephesus generally and in other places across Turkey, many of these little shrines, along with uh, models of the temple that were crafted out of terracotta. They seem to have been used in the worship of Artemis, but, but they were probably also sold as souvenirs to visitors to Ephesus who came either just to see the temple or to also worship at the temple. Demetrius seems also to have been a leader in the local artisans' guild. You might call him a union boss. Um, he, he, he called a meeting of the guild and invited other tradesmen whose business derived from the worshipers and the visitors to the temple. In verses 25 to 27, he outlines the current crisis. His first point is in verse 25. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. We have our wealth. He's honest to acknowledge that he's thinking of his own financial interest and inviting them to think of theirs. Second, he said in verse 26, and you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. I wonder if he just paused and thought about what he just said, right? Gods made with hands are not gods. Really? That's amazing. Something you made with your hand is not a god. Hmm. Good thought. But here we gain insights not only into the, the economic crisis in Ephesus, but also into the ministry of Paul the things that Paul talked about. What he was persuading the Ephesians of was, it seems, what he taught everywhere he went uh, in the pagan Gentile world. For example, he, he wrote to the Corinthians, chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, that an idol has no real existence and that there's no God but one. And to the Galatians, he said in chapter 4, verse 8, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And in his first letter to the church in Thessalonica, he affirmed them for their faith in this way, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. See, what Demetrius was saying, in other words, was that the, the startling spread of, of this new doctrine preached by this Paul was cutting deeply into their profit margins. 
by, by exposing the preposterous falsehood of idolatry itself. Um, their sales charts were sinking. Think about that. In verse 10, Luke follows his description of Paul's two-year ministry in the hall of Tyrannus with the statement, so all the residents of Asia, all the residents of Asia, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And in verse 20, following the mass repentance of those who had been deeply engaged in the occult, we read the summary statement, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So the advance of Christianity, the the sheer number of those who were turning away from paganism to personal faith in Christ, had begun to erode the market for idols and other trinkets related to the worship of Artemis and to pose a measurable threat to the livelihood of those involved in their production and in their marketing. In all the places that Paul went, the the very institution of idol worship seems to have been tottering under the impact of the gospel of Christ. In his commentary on Acts, the late John Stott notes that Demetrius was subtle enough not to appeal directly to his colleagues' economic concerns. Uh, Instead, in verse 27, it's recorded that that he approached the matter by appealing to three other, we might say, higher motives. First, the danger that their own trade would lose its good reputation. Secondly, that the temple of Artemis might lose its prestige. And third, that their goddess would forfeit her divine majesty. And so, in short, he, he disguised their, um, his financial greed behind the guise of patriotism and religious Faithfulness, religious fidelity. I wonder, do you, do you think this strategy is still employed today by politicians and others who want to influence the masses, attaching religion and patriotism to their purposes? <laughs> of course that happens. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Albert Moeller wrote, the gospel invades every sphere of life. Even economic policies cannot escape from the transformative power of the gospel. The gospel confronts the sinfulness inherent in the systems of our society. When Christians proclaim the gospel, they will not only meet lost souls, but will expose immoral institutions that war against the principles of the biblical ethic. In a post-Christian world, therefore, there will sometimes be no way for the gospel and society to peacefully coexist, and the backlash from from the society might be fierce, particularly when the gospel threatens livelihoods. In verses 29 to 34, Luke wrote of crowds and chaos, So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. 
Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. and Most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So this meeting of the Artisans Guild, the trade unions, resulted in in such an eruption of passion and rage that it spread quickly across the city and it threatened to involve or to evolve into a full blown riot. That word confusion in verse twenty nine describes a chaotic scenario. It's not just talking about mental, you know, questioning. It's talking about a riot. It's talking about social chaos. Luke pictures crowds surging into the streets down the central avenue of Ephesus to the 25,000 seat, 25,000 seat theater, still there today. You can see it. Two Macedonians, Gaius or Gaius and Aristarchus, who were friends of Paul, were grabbed and dragged by the crowd along the way. Who knows what they wanted to do with them. Paul wanted to go into the crowd, perhaps thinking because of his Roman citizenship and his persuasiveness, he could calm things down. But on this occasion, it was a good thing to have wise friends in high places. Luke mentions the Asiarchs. Um, who were the Asiarchs? Well, they were local political uh, leaders, local civic leaders who exercised political authority on behalf of Rome. And some of them urged Paul to stay away from what was turning into a riot. And and one can only imagine what what might have happened if Paul had ignored their counsel. Then consider verse 32. I love this verse. I've spent a little time thinking about this verse this week. Here's a perfect picture of the mentality of a mob. Now some cried out one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come. (laughs) I would just say, you know, venture into the the edges of any riot that you've ever seen, and that's what you'll find. Remember being at, at the Tacoma Dome years ago for a Promise Keepers conference, and there were these women that were protesting the conference, and they were walking around in a circle holding signs. I don't remember what the signs said, but but you can imagine, right? So I just I, I walked into that and just kind of got into the, and I'm just I'm doing this with them, you know, and and, and I'm going up to to woman after woman saying, could could I just talk to you for a second? And some of them just yelled louder, you know, and finally one was willing. And I said, why are you here? And she goes, because it's a sexist movement. It's, you know, it's all this. And I said, can I just explain to you what what we believe about a husband's love for his wife, his sacrificial love for his wife, that, that Jesus elevated women and and by the time I got done, I mean, and I said, one of the questions I asked her is, how did you end up here? And she goes, well, my friend invited me. And she said, I guess I really didn't know much about promise keepers. 
I said, well, I guess not. And I was able to share the gospel with her. And she didn't pray to receive Christ that day. But it just struck me that she had no idea why she was even there or what the whole thing was really all about. So verse 32 is, is profound. People who are uh, rioting, um, ask them why they came, what their cause, their complaint is most of them won't be able to tell you. And again, they'll just say, well, I was invited or, or we just wanted to be part of what was happening. Never allow yourself to get caught up in something like that. If you're going to protest something, know why you're there. And just recall the destruction of lives and property brought about by, by the violent riots in, in just in recent years in places as close as Portland, Oregon. Um, or, or in Minneapolis, or in Washington, D.C., there's, there's a reason that Moses gave this timeless command to Israel in Exodus 23 to never follow a crowd in doing wrong. Never follow a crowd in doing wrong. The Jews who found common cause with the worshipers of Artemis on this one thing, which was their opposition to Paul and to Christianity, put forward a man named Alexander to, to speak to the crowd. He was shouted down when they recognized he was a Jew. That led to no less than two hours, two hours of shouting and chanting in unison, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours. The only thing I've seen in in my life that that would compare to that um, are are Arabs shouting for hours, Allahu Akbar. God is great. Allah is great. Or in about 1978 or 79 when the Houston Oilers came back from the playoffs, they didn't win, but they, they were cheered for two hours by by the the fans in Houston. Um, in the final analysis, the only thing the pagans in Ephesus could do against Paul and against the way, against the, the Christian movement, was to shout themselves hoarse. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians resounds down through the ages to our own time, doesn't it? We we just express our idolatry in other terms. Great is my sports team. Great is my political party. Great is my candidate and my cause. Great is material wealth. Great is leisure time. Great, great is material wealth. And great are my vacations. Great is my prestige at work and in my community. Great is getting high. Great is internet porn. And remember that any form of idolatry, any philosophy or religion or habitual sin may appear great and powerful and extremely desirable for the moment, but infinitely greater is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven and earth may pass away. His word will never pass away. He is the only Savior. He's the righteous judge. He's the eternal king. He will reign forever and ever. Have you noticed? No one worships Artemis anymore. 
I mean, if you were to name the, the, the deities that people worship in the world today, Artemis would not be on your list. No one's worshipped her for, for a couple thousand years. And yet in our time, we who say, great is the Lord of heaven and earth, great is our Lord Jesus Christ, are considered Neanderthals. We're, we're the ones who are, you know, out of step with the times. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed by the continuous renewing of your mind. In verses 35 to 41, Luke wraps up this section by writing of rage and reason. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis? and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Thank God for that town clerk who stepped in and quieted the crowd. God used him to to preserve the work of Christ, to preserve the people of Christ in Ephesus. Without his intervention, the entire situation could have resulted in even greater chaos and injuries, even fatalities. But notice the four points he made. First, the whole world knows that Ephesus is the guardian of Artemis Temple and the cult of Artemis is in no danger. They believed that. It was effective. And so he said, y'all just need to check, chill out. Y'all just need to calm down. Everything's going to be all right. Secondly, th- these men, referring to Gaius and Aristarchus, are guilty of neither sacrilege. In that, in this case, that word means robbing temples. And it was a very common thing in those days. Because the, the the pillars of the temples were also covered with jewels. People would come in and just steal parts of the temple. He says, these, these, these guys are not guilty of that, nor are they guilty of blasphemy. They're, they haven't been saying anything bad about Artemis. They haven't been blaspheming the goddess. They're, they're innocent of the charges. And, and make note with me here that Paul and company, this is so important for us to understand today, Paul and company did not preach against Artemis. They did not preach against the temple of Artemis. Neither did Paul talk smack against Demetrius or the Artisans Guild. He simply preached the gospel and the name of Jesus. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel did its powerful work. You get that? They didn't have to preach against Artemis. They didn't have to preach against the evil in the community. They preached the gospel, and the gospel confronted the evil. Third, he he points out here that that Demetrius and his colleagues were familiar with statutory legal procedures. If if they had a private grievance, they could bring their case to court. If their, their case is more serious, more public, they could refer it to the city council, which in those days was was a higher court. 
And then fourth, the citizens of Ephesus, he says, are them in, themselves in danger of being charged with civil disorder. And, and who were they accountable to? The Romans. If, if the riot continued, there was no way they'd be able to justify themselves to the Romans for violating the, the Pax Romana, the civil peace that was required by the empire for those cities that wanted to remain free. And each of those arguments was was persuasive. The four together were decisive. By the time the city clerk dismissed the assembly, they, they all went home with with cooler heads and calmer hearts. Well, that's the story. There it is. And I need to land this plane. What, what lessons can we learn from this first century story that would be of value to us who are on the same continuing mission of making Christ known in the 21st century? Now, here are a few that that occur to me. First, if you choose to be on mission, you can expect hard work. Taking the gospel to our post-Christian secularized world uh, will require us to think, to pray, to plan, to act strategically. And we can learn a great deal from the strategy of Paul with regard to the secular places he chose um, the reasoned persuasive presentations that he made and the extended periods that he stayed that, that will challenge each in turn our, our church facility-centered methods, our short-term emotional evangelistic appeals, and our preferences for superficial and personal engagement. Paul's ministry countered all of those things. Second, we can expect resistance from our spiritual enemy. It's a given. Sharing the gospel can be both spiritually and physically dangerous. The work of Jesus rarely advances without some form of counteroffensive from the kingdom of darkness. And this is as true in the mission of the church as it is in the life of every one of us as believers in Jesus, as followers of Jesus. That when you get serious about sharing the gospel with friends or family members, don't ever be surprised if something goes sideways. But never give up. Pray. Persevere. Persist. Persuade. Reason. Third, we need to be very careful in advancing the gospel about doing collateral damage that results in damage to our witness. What do I mean by that? Isaiah the prophet said that Messiah, when he came, would be a stone that makes people stumble and a rock that gives offense. The Apostle Paul talked about the offense of the gospel itself. And as as powerful and direct and confrontational as the gospel is, the city clerk in Ephesus was still able to say that Paul's team were guilty neither of sacrilege of the temple nor blasphemy against the goddess. They did no collateral damage. Instead, they stuck to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When today we attempt to lace the gospel with other elements, like, for example, our political positions, or when today we lace the gospel with boycotts of businesses we we don't approve of, the gospel, the clarity of the gospel message 
is compromised and our audience is lost. No such charge ought to be brought against those whose goal is to proclaim the pure message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the gospel is not the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or the Libertarians or Green Party or whatever political group you can name. The gospel is offensive enough all by itself. Some of you may have read somewhere along the line about the revivals in Wales that began in 1901 through the preaching ministry of a a young pastor, an evangelist named Robert Murray McShane. Um, Great reading, by the way. If you ever want to have your heart inspired, read about the Welsh revivals. The Welsh people were uh, repenting of sin and turning to faith in Christ so miraculously, so rapidly, and in such large numbers that one of the effects was that um, the pubs, the very one of the most popular businesses in Wales, I believe me, the pubs all across Wales were shutting down. Why? There simply weren't enough customers showing up anymore for them to stay in business. And it wasn't because McShane was railing against the evils of alcohol and drunkenness. He wasn't. He preached the pure message of salvation in the name of Jesus Christ, and God, by his Holy Spirit, worked a great revival in Wales, all across that country. Fourth, because those who are engaged in Christian ministry and mission here in the U.S. and around the world uh, are men and women just like we are, they're engaged in spiritual warfare and as vulnerable as we are to getting drawn off message, to succumbing to moral and spiritual compromise. So we need to pray. I hope you will pray for pastors and church staff members, evangelists, missionaries, church planters, regularly, not not just for material provision, not just that they'll be physically well, but for moral and spiritual integrity, and most of all, gospel clarity. One more thing, and I'm done. In spite of their deception, you have to admire the ardor, the passion of the Ephesians who chanted for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. By contrast, uh, I, I often hear about it from people when a worship service goes over time by even 10 minutes. And I just want to say, if, if you don't like worship, you're going to hate heaven. Amen? You're awfully quiet all of a sudden. Wouldn't you love to see Christians demonstrating passion and desire to linger, to declare the greatness of the one true God in extended hours of extended worship, caught up in in worship and wonder and praise and, and genuine repentance? I know I would. I love to participate in that. There is no greater thing than that. You may have heard uh, in the news that that's what's been happening this past week at Asbury University in Kentucky. A professor at 
Asbury Seminary, which is just across the street from the university, described it this way. He said, most Wednesday mornings at Asbury University are like any other. A few minutes before 10, students begin to gather in Hughes Auditorium for chapel. Students are required to attend a certain number of chapels each semester, so they tend to show up as a matter of routine. But this past Wednesday, February 8th, was different. After the benediction, the gospel choir began to sing a final chorus, and then something began to happen that defies easy description. Students did not leave. They were struck by what seemed to be a quiet but powerful sense of transcendence, and they did not want to go. They stayed and continued to worship. They are still there. I teach theology across the street at Asbury Theological Seminary, and when I heard of what was happening, I immediately decided to go to the chapel to see for myself. When I arrived, I saw hundreds of students singing quietly, They were praising and praying earnestly for themselves and their neighbors and our world, expressing repentance and contrition for sin and interceding for healing, wholeness, peace, justice. Some were reading and reciting scripture. Others were standing with arms raised. Several were clustered in small groups praying together. A few were kneeling at the altar rail in front of the auditorium. Some were lying prostrate while others were talking to one another and their faces were bright with joy. They were still worshiping when I left in the late afternoon and when I came back in the evening. They were still worshiping when I arrived early Thursday morning. And by mid-morning, hundreds were filling the auditorium again. I have seen multiple students running toward the chapel each day. By Thursday evening, there was standing room only. Students had begun to arrive from other universities, the University of Kentucky, the University of the Cumberlands, Purdue University, Indiana Wesleyan University, Ohio Christian University, Transylvania University, (laughs) Midway University, Lee University, Georgetown College, Mount Vernon Nazarene University, and many others. The worship continued through the day on Friday. And indeed, all through the night on Saturday morning, I had a hard time finding a seat. By evening, the building was packed beyond capacity. Every night, some students and others have stayed in the chapel to pray through the night. And as of Sunday evening, the momentum shows no sign of slowing down. I saw this tweet from one student. Asbury Chapel continued yesterday in waves of prayer worship, and gut-wrenching public confession. It was a significant and spontaneous move of the Spirit that lasted for hours. What a phenomena to witness. Come, Holy Spirit. And it's been going on now for 12 days. It's still going on today. At Asbury, with no sign of letting up, may God work that same kind of spiritual passion in us. To worship passionately, passionately, to, to repent genuinely, to live obediently, and may the gospel of Jesus be set free through us to shine the light of Jesus Christ into this spiritually dark city of Olympia, Washington. And all God's people said, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. May your spirit have his way in us and through us. May we be called to passionate worship. May we be moved from our inner being to cry out to you, to confess sin, to repent of sin.
to experience genuine forgiveness and healing. Lord, may we be a church that glorifies you in every respect. Lord, purify our hearts. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. And may that movement of your spirit spread throughout this congregation and throughout our city. May there be revival in our city. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.